I have a dream that all men are created equal. Welcome back to your story. I'm your host, Ian Cat. This is episode 30. It's nearly Christmas, folks, so Merry Christmas to everybody, all of you out there who celebrate that, and uh, happy birthday to your story. It's been just a year now that we've been doing this, and thanks very much for coming on this little adventure with me. I'm enjoying it a great deal. I wish I could get a few more episodes out, but, you know, life gets in the way, and I'm not making any money out of this. This is my passion, so this is just the way it is. But I'm still plodding away, and I've got another episode for you today. Um, watch, watch out for the noise in the background. Yeah, it's summer here in Australia, and there's birds everywhere. You're likely to hear cuckoos and curlews in the background. Hear it? Yeah, it's ra- rather lovely. Sounds a bit uh, wild sometimes around here with the wildlife. The downloads keep continuing, and uh, a few more people keep coming along all the time. And hey, I'd like to ask a question. What's going on? That episode that I did two episodes ago with Colin, it was only fairly recent, and people keep coming along and downloading even old episodes from a year ago. You know, they still download slowly. So I don't expect very high numbers with the most recent episodes, of course, but Colin's episode, what happened with that? I've got twice as many downloads of that particular episode for re- compared to all the other episodes, you know, approximately twice as many. If somebody would like to pop over to the site and let me know why they think that maybe that episode's downloaded so many times, I'd really appreciate it. It's uh, definitely one of those situations where it bucks the system that people say, keeping everything short. Now, that's the very longest episode I've done with that little bit that I added on the end, but it's downloaded, uh, like I said, twice as many as all the other episodes. Anyway, thanks for listening, folks. I really appreciate it. It's nice to, it humbles me to think that there are people out there who are take the time to listen to this i appreciate it heaps and gives me motivation to keep getting out there and doing it if you think somebody out there else might uh, appreciate it pass it pass the word around send them a link Uh, you can burn a copy i don't care this is all creative common stuff anyway so you know i just want this stuff out there i'm not making like sending any dough out of it so just pass it around get people to find out about it maybe somebody says something that's interesting or poignant or educational that you want to share with somebody else yeah get it out there i appreciate it the site of course yourstorypodcast.com you know where to find it you can leave a comment at the end of a post yeah i love that and you can send me an email chat at your story podcast if you search for me ian kath and by the way my surname is spelt with a k uh, you'll find me all over the place i'm on twitter i'm on facebook i'm there yeah, flicker photos all sorts of places so you can dig me up the links are all over on the site if you poke around a bit, love to hear from you. It's good to know that you're out there, folks. 
Um, over at the site, you can get the iTunes and the feeds and all that sort of stuff. Stumble me, dig me, share the love around. I do this for love because I love you guys. So share the love around and you know, put some comments out there. You know, the whole iTunes one's brilliant. It does me a lot of good. Music, of course, got to give Iota. And I saw on Twitter today, um, Iota have got 60, uh, Iota artists have got 60 Grammy nominations. How about that? A company, a relatively new company, is managing artists and they've got 60 Grammy uh, nominations. So I think this is brilliant. This just shows that there are ways of doing music in different ways. It doesn't have to be the old system. Um, it's, all, it's all shaking up. I think it's tremendous. Anyway, into today's show. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, Iota Promonet. Go there, grab the links, go and buy their music if you like it. They've got stacks of stuff there. Makes the artists a few bit of money. Yeah. Today's show. Hey, I live in West End in Brisbane. West End's one of those suburbs that's in every city. You know, it's it's a, an area where the migrants hang out, uh, moved to, had a bit of an industrial area, a little bit grubby in years gone past, and it's now being heavily gentrified. Apartments going up everywhere, overwhelming the traditional industrial base. Anyway, I like running around those areas. They're often quiet, especially after hours, and I was running along one of them, oh, several months ago, and I saw this one industrial premises that make street furniture and I recognized their decor because I've seen the street furniture around it's rather unusual it uses flat sheet steel that's been perforated and then folded up to form all sorts of funky and cool stuff you'll be able to see exactly what I talk about when you go to the site and have a look at the photos I put up anyway I thought you know I've got this trade background in manufacturing so I have a little bit of a knowledge of the process of design and I've made quite a few things myself and I've got a lot of time for designers, particularly uh, industrial designers and furniture designers, interior designers. Anyway, this place operates with industrial designers. That was fairly obvious. So I thought I'd have a look at what they're up to and uh, stuck my head in through the window. And eventually I met David and I asked him if he'd like to have a chat and come on the show and talk to, talk to us about the world of design, manufacturing. And uh, yeah, that sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that a lot of you people probably may not necessarily know a great deal about, so I thought you might be interested. What surprised me about David, and this is what came out towards the end of the conversation, was I think uh, oh, he loves design, that's for sure, but he's actually a very fair person. And I think his major goal now is to ensure that there is a, a, you know, yeah, a legacy that he's leaving behind of well-trained and well-educated people and he's helping young designers and uh, other people come up through the ranks and uh, I think it's a very very positive thing for him to be doing anyway enough of me here's David's story Wednesday 10th of December 2008. Sitting here with David Shaw, we're going to talk about design and, and uh, industrial design and street furniture and the things that you've been up to. I was walking around here uh, a few weeks back and I, I saw your operation and I went, this looks familiar because I'd seen the furniture around the street that you use in your styling here. And today, just before I came over here, I dropped it on the website and I realised that it wasn't just this latest stuff that you've put into South Bank Institute of Technology, you've got stuff that goes back decades all around Brisbane by the looks of it. Stuff that I, you know, I, I've seen for a long time. So I'd like you to uh, tell me all about this, David, and uh, a little bit about industrial design. I don't think a lot of people have an appreciation of 
the true skill of industrial design. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks, Ian. Um, well, uh, my, my business has been around now for 18 years, but the street furniture thing goes back way beyond that to when I was actually a, a, a student um, back in the 70s. So uh, back then, myself and some other students developed some furniture for well, various places. Um, uh, coming from Tasmania originally, it was actually for Hobart, and we did a, a streetscape in Hobart all those years ago, um, won, in, won a design award in 1975. Um, and uh, there's also some work done at that time for the Hobart Airports Corporation, some play structures, and there's a so that the idea for street furniture has been hanging around for a fair while. I, I think, um, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, when, I, when, when we were doing it at college, it seemed like kind of an interesting thing to do, but not very glamorous. Was there much street furniture way back then, other than a um, few concrete and timber benches? No, no, that's the thing. I think um, everybody, probably everybody who's of my age, um, I, mean, I don't really want to say what that is right now, but <laughs> everybody who's of my age would remember that... Um, uh, Street furniture amounted to some concrete seats and some concrete, um, well, I think basically old Hume's pipes turned on their side with a bin shoved in them and mm. they were sort of stinky, smelly, nasty looking things mm. and most towns kind of accepted that mm. that's what it was and often they'd have some crappy advertising on them for the local plumber or whatever and they weren't very exciting or very, very handsome. They didn't fit in with the local streetscape. They didn't consider anything like that. They simply served a function and that's it. They were very functional, weren't they? Well, they were functional, maybe. They were, um, the function was mostly about advertising and less about comfort. Um, there was no consideration for um, how they might be accessible for older mm. people. There's usually, they missed arms, they didn't sort of really consider much at all, actually. They, they were sort of cheap to produce. They were made by Humes, mostly. They were made by... Oh, wow. So literally pipes, literally concrete made by pipes. Humes. Literally yeah. concrete yeah. pipes and literally concrete sections made by Humes. That's right. where it sort of... Everybody, everybody knows of seats and rubbish bins as street furniture, but it sounds like it's more than just that. What, what would you call street furniture in this modern era? Um, well, now street furniture really amounts to... Well, well for me, for example, um, uh, say we're looking at something like Brisbane CBD, which is a project this company did, or I, I did as a designer maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Um, that involved uh, light poles, um, bollards, seats of different kinds, picnic settings, tree grates, tree guards, um, balustrades, basically pretty much everything you can see on the street is, uh, is part of the deal. And, and, and um, See, a lot of those things you don't even think of as being furniture, they're sort of very pragmatic things, that's like, right. like you said, a tree guard. Yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. That could be three star posts and a bit of cable. <laughs> That's pretty much it, and I think mine kind of are a bit like that too, except that um, the detail in them reflects part of the detail that's in the other gear. For example, um, the, uh, the the basis of the whole suite of furniture comes from the bollard, the bollard being the object, probably originally sort of coming from some old cannons that had been turned upside down to stop um, um, you know, a horse-drawn carriage mowing down pedestrians, well that same kind of principle still still exists but um, uh, so if you're in London and places like that you can see these things are really really old uh, maybe they are old cannons, I don't know mm. but um, 
what what happened here in Brisbane, for example, was that I looked at the um, the old heritage buildings and I looked at the modern buildings, and so the suite's all about the there's a lineal sort of detail in it, and that's about the the um, there's a detail in a lot of old buildings on the corners of the buildings. There's a sort of a horizontal lineal detail, which is you can see it in a lot of buildings. Um, and then, uh, of course, the high-rise have their layers of windows. So this design incorporates that that particular element. Now, it's not an obvious thing. It's not it's not really meant to be an obvious thing. Um, but um, every design requires a starting point. And, and ideally, um, when you're dealing with a streetscape, what you're looking for is something that uh, will fit in uh, with with uh, the existing sort of built built environment, natural environment. This, much as it possibly can so you're looking to sort of complement that without actually you know making a, a huge statement in most cases um, so you're looking at designing something that basically people as you say don't actually really kind of notice they just when, when the stuff went into Brisbane City Council when, 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 when we first did the CBD at Brisbane Brisbane City Council reputedly had no comments for or against the designs now that's pretty well unheard of um, and what it meant was that the public weren't offended by it and the architects and all the sort of the the sort of um, creative part of the community also either you know were belligerent towards it had no particular passion towards it in any way well, who else was doing it back then well not, not there was not really anybody doing anything in a coordinated sort of way and it's still fairly unusual actually if you look at the the sort of street furniture that people um, produce around the world, it's still unusual to actually find someone who's up for doing um, completely coordinated suites of furniture. What so, I'm thinking about is when you did that, maybe um, there was no concept of street furniture, so a lot of people didn't have an opinion either way. They didn't know that they could have anything more than a, a concrete light pole and you know some very basic seating. I think that that probably is true. Um, I, I guess some... Um, if you look at the sort of history of the way I've sort of developed my ideas, I think um, you could say that naivety and um, and sort of uh, a sort of a you know a thing in my head just says, well, there's a need for this thing. I think as an industrial designer, that's what it's all about. I mean, it's basically about a need for things. I mean, for example, back in the 70s, I had a as a 21-year-old had a, a fairly severe motorcycle crash. Right. And uh, I found myself um, sort of out of action for well over a year. And the orthopedic crutches that were available at the time were sort of, and still are basically sort of a wooden thing. They're basically a throwaway kind of a thing. Now, when you take an object that big, which is you know, virtually the size of a human being, and you start to try and go to the picture theater, or if you try to get onto a bus or whatever, the things are pretty damn clumsy. So, um, sort of seeing a problem there, which is what industrial design is all about, just seeing a problem that needed to be solved. I developed um, some orthopedic crutches that basically just folded. It uses the same principle as the handles on a, um, on a lawnmower where you have a crimp in your piece of tube and, it, and by using a bolt you can actually lock the... There's a sort of a, a ding in the tube yes. and you basically do up a, a bolt and the thing stays nice and rigid while well, using that exact same principle um, and using uh, sort of a form that created a kind of a bit of tension or a kind of a spring action I could actually sort of make the crutches half the size. Um, Did they go into production? 
Um, well, actually, funnily enough, I, that I, I ended up on the ABC Inventors back then, which was really weird, because that woman was still around asking me what colour they would be and all that sort of stuff. That's People right. might remember. Diane. Di, 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 whatever her name yes, was. And, yes. And now we've got the new inventors. Exactly right. Um, and... Um, yeah, the uh, no, no, I kind of lost track. Of oh, yeah. did you did you go into production with those? Oh, sorry, you, that, that was the question. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no. I, what I was waffling about before was that I actually came up to Brisbane because there's a company up here that um, that's heavily into doing uh, products for you know, aids for dis disabled persons, and of course the bulk of these things are, are really quite ugly. They're really not, um, you know. They basically do, they're, they're functional and that's about the long and the short of it. And so, um, it's a Morris Surgical, I think, they're called. Still around. Yeah, Morris Surgical, yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, I saw those guys and they kind of looked at putting them into production, but the reality was, even back then, we didn't really have sort of the China syndrome that we have now, but even back then, those sort of things were imported, the old sort of wooden crutches, and they were so cheap. It was actually cheaper to just throw them away than build this better thing. So in the end, I built about probably maybe a dozen pairs, and I, I gave them to um, sort of various people uh, who, mostly people who are permanently disabled, mm. um, and they sort of hung in there for a fair few years. You know, they yeah, were, right. They were, they were, the the general idea, the principal thing was successful. The problem was, from a commercial point of view, it wasn't particularly commercially viable. Yeah. Well, that's how it was seen. So the fact that it, the fact that the design was actually better didn't really um, colour the attitude of manufacturer towards the the pure sort of economic outcome. And I guess if you look at um, design, that sort of thing still is a you know a major consideration in any the success of any design comes down uh, in a lot of ways to how much it'll it'll cost. Not always like that, but to a large degree for consumer items, it certainly. That is a, that's a big thing. That's right. I'd like you to explain to those people listening and myself what you think industrial design at its essence means. Because it's it's more than just design, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, industrial design is about really, it's really about problem solving. I mean, the simplest way of describing it is problem solving. So what you're looking at is um, a method of... Uh, of, of, of looking at the world in a different kind of way. So you look at sort of things that people need. You, I, I guess it's mostly about designing objects. So what we're talking about, I guess, is things that that people require. So, you know, it might be anything, in my case, so it's a, a park bench seat. Well, a, a well-designed a well park bench seat um, might consider um, the pitch in the road, and therefore have adjustable feet. It might consider... Uh, the way it fits to some pavers, uh, therefore it might the feet might slide a bit. It'll probably cons it'll consider the height that's um, ideal for the general public um, and for disabled persons. So it'll consider uh, the way that the shape of the seat and the the, the the curve of the back or the 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 pitch of the back will all be considered around um, how the thing's going to be used by by people. Um, the armrests will be considered in relation to older people trying to actually get themselves out of that seat. So um, proper industrial design is a lot more than the styling exercise. It's, uh, you know, a lot of industrial design might be described as a styling exercise. So there's a lot of chairs out there in the world and 
you know, how many more chairs do we need? And those chairs are designed by industrial designers. You know, they might call themselves a furniture designer, but an industrial designer is basically a person designing something that's going to be built in an industrial way. So it's going to be built by a machine. or it's, Even if it's built by a person, it's still an industrial process. They're still using tools to make it. So it's industrial. That's what it amounts to. So, so if you define industrial design as actually an industrial approach to manufacturing products, the designer's um, role is to make sure that those products are in fact going to going to be purposeful for the for the need that um, they've been developed for. I guess. How important do you see that industrial process of manufacturing being, especially in relation to cost and stuff like that? But as we move into more advanced manufacturing techniques. Oh yeah, it's 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 um it's really critical. I mean. There's a lot of people around, well, there, there used to be a lot of people around maybe in the 80s that were sort of designer makers. And um, the, the problem, problem with being a designer maker is that you're looking at maybe making, you know, a one-off or what people like to describe now in a trendy kind of fashion as a bespoke Yes, item. it's a very popular term, very bespoke, popular isn't term, it? No, bespoke. It's used for everything. Bespoke this and bespoke that. Um, and the reality is that it's very difficult for a person working in that fashion to actually make a living. That's what it comes down to. So, so you know, to find a premises and to set yourself up and to have the appropriate tools and everything, you know, things break and so on. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a labour of love, or you're so famous that people will pay silly money for it, and that's pretty rare. So, to approach design. Um, um, as an industrial designer, as a true industrial designer, and to look at how um, the manufacturing um, facilities that are available, available to you, or the manufacturing processes and people, I guess, that are available to you, um, is probably the most sensible and practical approach. I mean, you make a prototype, maybe, which, you know, being the first one, you might make that by hand. But these days, um, computer technology is so good that really ideas can be generated. Um, and images can be produced of, a, of that idea uh, so so clearly and so well defined um, that um, uh, sadly it would be reasonable to say that people are kidding. If, if they don't, if people don't have that ability, then of course they've got to draw a thing or whatever, you know, producing in a in a traditional kind of way. Well, they might want to just sort of build the thing and hope for the best kind of thing. But um, what's really happening is that you can develop. Uh, nowadays is that you can develop um, a product on your computer uh, considering um, a factory anywhere in the world basically um, that has the, the uh, capability to produce that particular shape so you can develop the thing on a computer and then you can literally just email the thing to that factory and, and uh, you know and shortly thereafter you'll, you'll see your object and so and they're, th they're techniques that people may have heard of called uh, rapid prototyping and CNC machining and stuff that like that. That sort of thing, yeah, yes. you're on the money there. Yeah. That's exactly how it is. Um, so our company, for example, uses a lot of CNC. Um, but we don't actually, we, we subcontract our production but because the equipment that we're using is worth millions of dollars mm. and, and you never have enough equipment. This is my experience. What, what techniques did you traditionally use and what techniques have you left behind and moved, uh, and what are the new techniques that you've embraced in the last few years? Very good question. I used to be a designer maker, so I used to 
Well, you were an actual maker, were you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I have city and guilds qualifications from the UK. I, I studied um, uh, furniture making over in the UK for a couple of years. Um, and is that primarily timber or did you do the whole gamut? Um, no, um, anything that will produce. I've always been the type of person that simply wants to produce a shape. Mm. Um, the, um, by learning how to make things in, in timber, in fact, by learning how to use machinery to make things in general, it simply gave me the ability to produce something that I could show someone as a finished object. And if I could finish it well, then they had to look at the object for what it was as a total completed idea as opposed to you know maybe a, a rough and ready prototype. So my, my theory was that if I could produce something that way that, that was as good as I could possibly you know make it and, as, and exactly how I wanted it to look then um, the object would be appreciated for, it, for, the, for the object itself and not for any shoddy workmanship. Mm. Yeah. So you're making identic, identical as produced prototypes? Um, well, initially. Probably, initially, initially, I yes. suppose so. I mean, I, at one stage I was doing um, a production, I was making uh, some wall clocks, some mm -hmm. sort of traditional, what would be called, I suppose, railway clocks, timber yes. frame. Um, but being me, I kind of worked out a way I could actually build them using machines. So I actually sort of effectively fabricated a, a turning device that would actually turn the shape that I wanted, uh, wood turning that is, you know, yeah, yeah. wood shaping. Uh, because to actually turn each one individually was exactly great fun, you know. So, um, and also not very cost effective, or, in, or certainly not very time effective. Um, well, time's um, cost. So. Time's a cost, yeah. that's right. So, um, I think in the sort of the learning, learning curve of becoming a, a sort of a, of, of I think of becoming enlightened, I, I think I'd call it now, to become enlightened as an industrial designer, to actually understand what you're doing is not sort of an instant process to actually sort of develop. Um, I don't think, you know, being a human being is, you know, it takes a long time to develop as a human being and I think... Um, and as you get close to understanding it, you die. That's what seems to happen, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. That's exactly what happens. You sort of suddenly, finally kind of realise, you know, that people, like, was it Oscar Wilde, was it said that, you know, youth wasted on the young are actually, they're on the money, mm. you know? It's, um, mm. unfortunately, it's true. Yeah, and you're not that old yet. And I'm not that <laughs> old yet, and I can see that, you know, well, you know, I'm not, I can sort of see there's a, you know, a few things that I wouldn't mind doing if I was, you know, 10 years younger. Mm. But, um, I, you know, you can't look at life in that way. You've got to be practical about things, and you've got to respect the fact that you actually have learnt things along the way. You've applied yourself to something. You've had a passion for it. You've enjoyed it, um, and uh, and the net result of all that is that you have a, a a breadth of understanding that makes your job easier. That's what it comes down to. Because in my case, I might look at a, I might go to a job or I might talk to a client, and I can make a lot of decisions about what that client wants, um, and I might even have trouble explaining those decisions to someone because they're not something that I've really consciously thought about this sort of just experience tells me that a certain kind of shape a certain kind of a process a certain kind of material will actually you know meet the criterion for that particular project and actually working for people and having them ask me expl to explain you know how I came up with the idea um, I, I usually come up with some fanciful thing that I think that they'll you know enjoy basically it's but what's the reality 
The reality, the, the reality would be, the reality would be the um, the form and function, the process of creating something that works. Basically, would be the reality. But the other story is the story about, you know, the philosophy behind it, and the philosophy philosophy behind it can often develop as the thing develops, because the the philosophy is a bit like history. It's just another story. In the end, at the end of the day, it's not any specific reality. It might have some basis in reality, but you know, sometimes things are a lot more enjoyable if they don't have it. They are just they are as blunt and boring as being you know as simple as reality. Do you do you find that philosophy of design, say on a piece, does that come before the you design the idol, or does it come after? Oh, well, it depends. As I say. Um, so the, the the basic idea for that thing becomes before the, the, the philosophy of the piece, especially if it's a good sales pitch, might come after, you know? In other words, if it's so, a good story that people like... Sure. So that's part of the sales pitch, isn't it? It is. But the point, I suppose the point I'm wanting to ask is, where does creativity come from? Where does creativity come from? Now, when a client turns around to you and says, hey, David, you know, what should I put here? And you go X, Y, Z. Where does that spark of inspiration come from? Ah. I think that's kind of what I was trying to explain before. I think that spark of inspiration comes from um, uh, the gestation of ideas and thoughts over a long period of time. That's what I mean, obviously, you know, it wasn't like that when I was 20. And when I was 20, I might look at an object and I might say, um, well, in fact, as I mentioned to you earlier on, a lot of the objects I designed when I was 20 are actually now kind of looking pretty good. When I designed them when I was 20, I didn't really think maybe so long and hard about the sort of environment they were going into. I simply wanted to do an interesting shape. Um, and I saw some interesting shapes in my head. I kind of, you know, figured out some 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 ideas I liked. And those ideas might come from anything, from a, a circlip. They might come from a, uh, something that's interesting in the front of a, a tree or a flower. They might come from any any source like that. So in other words, it's experience, it's the things you've seen and mm. the, the way you've you know, interpreted those things into, into the object that you're basically trying to build, be it you know, um, anything from a light fitting to a, you know, a wash basin. It could be, you know, the, the idea can be developed from a completely and totally different source. But as time goes by and your repertoire of um, shapes and experiences uh, increases, then um, you can kind of, for me, I can generally look at um, someone's face. I can sort of look at the place that they're in. I can kind of think about the space around them. I can think about the socioeconomic environment they live in. I can think about their friends and about the car they drive. And, you know, I can think about an awful lot of different incremental small bits of information. And then I can bring that information together into um, something that I think will suit them. And generally speaking, I'm pretty pretty much on the money. It's rare that I um, don't usually have a winner with the first idea. Does that surprise you that you pull it off? No, not really, because um, because I, I, something like 35 years now since mm. I sort of got into this. So you've got a lot of experience. Yeah, so... Um, and I, I've spent a fair bit of time overseas, and I've um, so I've experienced different cultures and um, various aspects of life, I guess. And um, 
and all those things are brought to bear on on, a, on the specifics of a of a particular idea. It's so. The first idea is often the best idea simply because all those little bits of information have been piled together into what seems like a reasonable solution. I'm not saying that it might not necessarily be a perfect solution. What I'm really saying is that it's a reasonable mm. solution. Um, and what I find now at my office is that I can take um, that solution that I've, I've um, you know, brought down to a, a sketch on a piece of paper and I can give it to one of my um, in-house designers and I can say, well, this is what I think would work and here's, here's why I think it'll work. Um, and I can give them a very clear idea because I've been drawing things for so long. I can give them a very clear idea of what, I, what the shape is going to be at any scale pretty much. Um, and then I can, fortunately these days, get them to take over and put and draw the thing up on um, on the computer, mm. which I have to admit that I don't know how to do. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, you're running the ship. Well, yeah. Well, and that takes, so it all gets designed on the computer, and that takes me back to that question I asked earlier about what materials did you used to use that you've now uh, abandoned and moved on to what new materials and methodologies? You know, it's still much of a, much of a muchness. Um, when, when I started this business... Um, Copyright infringement can be really um, detrimental to um, the progress of a business. Um, you know, people basically copying ideas can can basically you know diminish the value of that idea severely in terms of its potential outcome for the person that actually came up with the idea. So, when I started the business, I decided to do, um, and also because traditionally um, street furniture was um, cast metal products or cast concrete products, as we discussed earlier on. I concluded that the best way of stopping your average Aussie entrepreneur was to make it difficult for them. To make it difficult for them, um, the trick I came up with was to design everything around a moulded product, which means that they are generally a um, moulded metal product. And if you think in terms of sort of what people would perceive to be street furniture, sort of Victorian lace-worky type seats and things, uh, then... Um, uh, that seemed like an appropriate solution. And of course, the other thing that was in my head at the time was that most of our towns and cities have got a substantial content of older buildings. Uh, and I concluded that although I was sort of passionate about contemporary design, that if I really wanted the business to be a success, I'd be much better off to do uh, old world design. Mm. So, um, so that's what I did. I developed a, a range of products that was based on my idea of what federation might be, which looks nothing like anything that anybody else has done that's federation, but the the subtle changes to it, and of course for me, it, a lot of it was, it was about sort of functionality as well, so that one thing could become another thing and another thing could become another thing, so that therefore the cost of tooling, therefore the amount of tooling involved uh, could be could be more justified simply because I could make more more in a variety of objects from the one thing. Um, and this is the traditional pattern making, moulding, exactly. foundry trite. That's the one. Mm. And that's what happened. And and we still use a lot of that in our business. And, right. much, and because you own the patterns, you I've have, got complete control. You've got complete. Much. That's right. The only way somebody can copy it is to grab one of your castings and then copy that yeah, casting. And, and considering that most patents cost anything between these days, would be cost you a minimum of five thousand dollars, and 
you know, some of the objects that we make, the tooling for them was over $100,000. Your average um, <clears throat> entrepreneur uh, is more interested in buying, a, say, a, you know, a welder or something like that for their 3000 bucks because they can make a variety of objects with that particular tool, whereas with my cast metal tool, I can only make that suit, that's it. Yeah. Um, so, and also, it just simply, if, I, if I've got the tool to make the thing, it's not really worth anybody else's while to bother to do that thing. So most people don't. Mm. So you, you've already got the market, haven't you? Yeah. You've got the, the equipment, so why bother them? I will well go and copy somebody else. Exactly. Have you had much trouble with people copying you? Only people that have worked for me. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Only, and, and, and what that comes down to is a, a, a deep, um, a, a deep and um, long-term misunderstanding of the value of design, I think. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, I, I always felt when they did it, I, I was always disappointed. I, I guess I, I felt that I hadn't sold my message well enough to those people um, because they didn't respect the design input that had actually created the opportunity. They just saw the opportunity, saw the object. They had no concept of how that object had actually sort of come to be and kind of looked at me up and down and thought, you know, if a deal like him can do it, I can do it kind of thing. But that's without understanding the fact that I've, you know, been thinking about this for a long time mm. and, and um, have, have been able to achieve marketable ideas because of that longer-term process, not because I'm, you know, a prima donna about it, not because I'm big-headed about it, not because it just, it's, it's just like any other skill. So it's like a skill that I've developed that they simply don't have. And unfortunately um, haven't been able to understand so I guess you could say in, in uh, at least two of those cases it's been um, in, in the uh, the person that chopped off the golden goose's head you know right. it's the, the, they haven't really been particularly successful because in the end they had nothing to sell except for a copy of what I'd done and since um, you give a designer his own business and designer uh, Worthy salt will be continually designing new products, and in my case, not only am I designing new products, but I now employ uh, three young designers and I collaborate with a fourth. Um, and I've just employed a fifth. Wow! <laughs> um, uh, they have so to make you one of the larger design firms in Brisbane now. Which makes me one of the largest design firms in Brisbane, which is kind of sad when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, that's the design scene in Brisbane. I think. Even within the design team scene, maybe people don't realise how, how valuable design can be. Um, you know, how, how much... The, the effect of design, the, um, the roll-on effect. For example, we had, um, we had a guy in from our main factory this morning giving us our Christmas goodies and we handed over a few things to him. And I don't know, I think those guys are quite bemused by what we do, but their reception desk and various other things in their new building they've just done up partially a result of us giving them lots of work um, um, is something that we've designed for them and we've designed it around the way we feel about that business and the way we feel people will um, look at that business when they come in the door so we've used materials and processes that um, that they that they um, uh, just use in-house without really considering anything deep and meaningful about them it's not that deep and meaningful, I suppose. I mean, you know, they, they laser cut things, they break press things, they, you know, they fold things, they drill holes. But if you look deeper than that, they're forming up some really useful 
and valuable sort of things that'll be around for a long time. So when someone comes into the door of their building, what, what we were looking to do was um, even subliminally show those people that these people know what they're doing so that the, the way the thing's finished is beautiful. It uses materials that they can understand and, and, and um, value for the products that they want these guys to make for them. So we, even with something like that, we're thinking about you know, way beyond the fact that they just needed a reception desk that someone could sit behind and, and answer a phone. So what is, what is that design process that you've now moved into that these guys do for you? Because it's quite unique. I've, I haven't come across anybody who's into these methodologies before. Um, well, we use a lot of, um, we use a lot of cast metal products still, but a lot of the things that we're into now are using, um, as, as we mentioned earlier on, CNC equipment. And that CNC equipment gives us um, um, a lot of flexibility. Um, I, I like three-dimensionality, three-dimensional kind of shapes in, in products, and we can still do that, even though we're using, um, you know, flat sheet to start off with. We can actually fold and form and, and twist and shape, and we can put voids in the thing, and we can do various things, so that um, that piece of sheet metal takes on a life of its own. So. A piece of sheet metal sitting out in a public space may, for example, act as a, a light diffuser for sunlight. It might act as a light diffuser for, for um, artificial lighting at night time. Um, it might be nice things for kids to climb on. It might be any number of things that it wasn't when it was a sheet of metal. Mm, I'm, I'm, a, I'm amazed at how many different types of seating and tables you can get out of folding a sheet of metal in different ways. That's right. Um, and you know, and and even so, you know, you can design one that's too heavy. You can design one that's too light. You can design one that that twists when it shouldn't twist. You can. So, um, this is the subtlety of design that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. Yeah. Do you find people um, turn around to you and ask questions that lead on to belittling the design skill because they think that it's been replaced by this? amazing thing called computer technology? Oh, possibly. I don't know. I mean, all I can really say is that, as I mentioned earlier on, that people I've actually worked with who have seen me develop ideas have still not really understood the process and certainly not respected it. I mean, the, the whole concept of someone going into competition against you who you've been providing, you know, with up to a million dollars worth of work a year just seems so, so... Um, strange when they've had me in tears once you know because I was so disappointed in the person I I couldn't believe that they, they thought so little of what I'd done for them I mean this is a person that had moved from a sort of a two-car shabby old garage into a proper factory and had been able to really set themselves up and um, you know their response to um, my having sort of given them that opportunity was to kind of go into competition and I I found it just extraordinary that they just couldn't really see that their whole chance, the whole thing that had happened for them had come from the ideas generated by this person generous enough to give them the chance to develop their skills and all that to develop. Mm. I've just become co-president of the Design Institute of Australia here in Queensland and I guess one thing I'm hoping I can achieve is to actually get rid of some of the myths associated with design, get rid of some of the ideas that people have about it being an elitist kind of kind of thing, being a thing that's you know, only available to the few 
for the few. Um, because it's not so, I mean, um, IKEA uses designers for all their products and the products are, you know, very well thought out in the way they use materials and processes. And the question is, can um, even those areas of design be elevated? And of course they can, because if you remember back to the 70s, um, there's a lot of interesting plastic furniture being built in Australia in sort of vibrant greens and oranges and so on. And those pieces are now considered to be, you know, of some value. And they were bought from places like Coles and Woolies, you know, that's where they came from, mm. that's where they were sold. So, you know, the whole idea that design's an elitist um, thing is, well, I mean, I'd like to think I've dispelled it considering that I think around Australia there would be something like, there'd be several million um, of our objects that people use every day, you know, to sit on, to throw rubbish into, to walk past at night time with a light glowing, to protect their trees, to right. um, to drink out, to drink out of, and so on. I mean, there, there's an awful lot of it out there, and it's all been developed by an industrial designer for the purposes of the public to be more comfortable in their in in the urban spaces. That's the whole idea of it. The you know when when we start talking about um, um, the way here in Australia, uh, new housing estates are developed. A lot of those now, things, places like, um, say, North Lakes Housing Estate, mm. we've developed various suites of furniture for those estates. And the suites of furniture are designed around the ideology of the um, developer, um, which considers um, a lot of public spaces uh, in incorporated into those sort of urban villages, I suppose you'd call them. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a great thing. One job we did recently, um, I think, um, will stick in my mind and probably be a, a thing that I bring up, you know, in conversation with people like yourself a lot. And that's a job we did for the Sealy Mattress Factory. Yeah, yeah. Which sounds like an unusual thing to do. But the thing that's interesting about that job is that the owners of um, the Sealy Mattress Factory, a factory that's been around sort of, for a really long time and, the, and and sort of hadn't really had any work done on it in, in terms of um, development of the space at all since probably the 60s and 70s and was you know really a very not a nice place to be um, they decided they'd do a total refurb of it and, and, and not just for the um, sort of the I suppose what you describe maybe as the um, the elite or the you know the administration part of that business and not just for their customers for a nice place for their customers to come in and see a mattress kind of thing um, but for the whole factory so they re redeveloped the whole factory around um, creating a space that was good for every person in the workforce um, to you know to be a good place for them to be so you're talking about canteen areas you know for lunch and smoko exactly um, toilet areas you know the whole the whole parking the whole Shooting match. The whole lot. So um, we developed special designs for the cafeteria, which has now got um, good food, um, painting on the wall, would you believe? There's a water feature. It's a fantastic place to be. It's better than most cafes. It's really, really something. And, and you know, we considered um, the products in relation to the way they might be used. So we've done some plastic chairs for them that are stackable and they're, um, they're easy to clean and they have fantastic maintenance there so the stuff looks 
way better than most of the stuff that we've done in the public spaces. It's cleaned every day. Mm. It looks fantastic. It looks as good as the day we put it in there. We did some big um, banquet tables, external banquet tables, and um, we did some sculptural elements as well, some light sculptural elements. Um, we did an area for the smokers, so we did um, um, site-specific and really quite attractive furniture for people to go and have a cigarette on. In fact, right down to the point where we actually built in cigarette disposal in the middle of the table, so they've got a a thing that can be removed every day easily, which the smokers can throw their butts into, and doesn't, um, and encourages them to use get rid of their butts appropriately rather than yeah, because it's right there near their hand. That's right, know? that's right. And it's the, the and if they have to reach too far, they flick the butts, don't yeah. they? And yeah. it's all about um, the the, the socialisation of those workers, and it's all about the socialisation of the administration workers as well, because everything's big long tables where people. Uh, are basically forced to communicate with each other. And I, I think uh, it's fantastically mm. forward thinking of that of, of that uh, particular company. I think it's an amazing kind of thing to do. And, uh, and um, um, obviously, the, well, not obviously, to everybody, but there was a, a specific architect involved in all this processing, and he was the one that really approached us about this. Um, the client was amenable. I mean, it wasn't exactly... We didn't do anything that was wildly expensive, but it was certainly because it's purpose-built and bespoke. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but, every, but you know, all buildings and stuff are bespoke by definition. Well, aren't they, they are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. But, I mean, incorporated into this design is a kind of a subtle variation on the quilting and mattresses. So, and you, get, you can see this as shadows on the ground, and you can see it as, at night time, you can see it as splashes of light on the wall. And... You know, it really was a very successful project. I mean, it's structurally successful, it's functionally yeah. successful. A piece of social thinking about, you know, how people um, spend most of their li lives in a, in a workplace and creating a, you know, a great workplace to be, I think, a true um, and biggest positive outcome of the whole, whole thing. It's fantastic. It sounds like a tremendous idea. I've worked in places where you'd rather stay... In, your, in the workshop and have your lunch and go mm. to where everybody eats because it's just disgusting. Exactly. And there's lots of places like that around. Most, and this place was just like that too. And, and, yeah, and it's never even thought about. You know, like no. you're here to work, food's irrelevant. Exactly. And I just think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. One of my favourite jobs is, you know, we've done Brisbane's CBD and we've done Gold Coast CBD and we've done Toowoomba's CBD. And by that I mean we've developed complete ranges of furniture, their whole suite, um, the furniture, light poles, rubbish bins, seats, picnic tables, etc., etc. And those jobs are great. And, um, and of course, they, they, you know, everybody gets to see those jobs. But this one, uh, I think, is particularly impressive simply because it was a public company, or a private company, sorry, a privately family-owned company that could see a greater need or, you know, a greater purpose to what they were doing apart from just, you know, building mattresses. Mm. I think it's a fantastic mm. story for that, it that is. reason. I like to think that a lot of the developers are starting to sort of realise that the things at a human scale, which, of course, you know, street furniture is, and all furniture furnishings are designed basically around the idea of supporting a body or, or creating amenity for a body in one way or another. To think about those objects as something special to the environment that people can easily relate to creates a whole 
Well, for a lot of the estates that we do, it creates kind of a, almost a signature to that estate. It creates something that people can say, oh, you know, that place, you know, it's near that sort of specific object. You know, that kind of thing starts to happen. And well, it's blatantly obvious there. Um, one that I saw on the site this afternoon is um, tables and chairs that you call burly. Yeah. Which the seats are shaped like surfboards, so it's obvious because it's beside the ocean. You know, it fits the harmony of the place perfectly. Yeah, and, and you that's know, a classic example, I think. They're one of the few things that we've had stolen, so they must be... <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I suppose theft is a bit like imitation. It's, a, it's, it's, it's quite is, a compliment. You know, it's, kind of, it's kind of a compliment. And, um, like, for example, if you take um, Surface Paradise, the CBD, just a CBD session, they used to change the whole CBD and all the furniture and so on every couple of years. And since the furniture was developed for that, which is shell shapes and surfboard seats and so on, it's, it's definitely become of the image of surface paradise. That's pretty satisfying for me as a designer. It's become a sort of a, a uh, synonymous with that location. So how long and they've kept on using it. How long has that set been in there? Well, that's been in there for probably 12 or 13 years. Oh, like wow. That. So you've blown away the, you know, the previous stuff by several times over. Yeah. And I managed to do that with things like hotels before I even started this business. I, I did um, a hotel um, which is well known on the coast called Royal Pines Resort. Mm-hmm. And the public, I did all the furniture for that one. And the bulk of that furniture is still there. And that's nearly 20 years ago. So, good design um, has that capability, or well thought out design, I suppose. You know, I come from a generation of seen and not heard people, so I find it hard to, you know, truly believe perhaps sometimes in what I've achieved. But, but but, But when I look at something like that project and I see that the things that I've designed are still there all in all these years past. I, I can I have a, a sense that you know, what I was thinking at the time was correct, and that the um, that the ideas uh, worked for that particular location. Uh, and if they continue to do so, I think that's absolutely brilliant. I think time's a great measure of whether something's got quality to it. Yeah, know, I reckon so. Yeah, mm. yeah. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's still around several years later, you know that you must have done something right. Yeah, that, 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 that's kind of my little justification for mm. myself. Mm. Mm. I agree. Do what I do. First, first time I ever heard about you um, was when you won the State Tourism Award oh, yeah. for that little sucker over there. Yeah. Would you like to describe that to us? Me Barra Bowl. Um, Barra Bowl is a result of a seat I did. I, I, I got a... Um, uh, some friends and I decided we'd go and do um, the Milan Furniture Fair. We've been there a couple of times before, and we decided we'd do a, do a show at the Milan Furniture Fair. So I decided, you know, I like a surf, and I decided, in a, you know, in a kind of a, to do something sort of whimsical and Australiana. So I decided upon uh, a seat that was kind of like a, a double-headed post-nucleric kind of <laughs> fish. <laughs> Um, and from that shape of that seat, I kind of, the form of it sort of, sort of lent itself to various other things. So I developed this um, shape for folding objects. I needed something I could take over to Milan that could easily be shoved in a case. And I wanted a sort of an object that looked really, you know, reasonably impressive that I could actually carry over there and wouldn't cost me lots to carry. So I developed several sort of 
kind of ideas around uh, sort of laser cut metal that could be folded into a shape, you know, once you actually got to wherever you were going. And one of those things is bowl. Um, and at the last minute, my friend Alex is here, um, suggested we put this up for the Memento Awards a few years back. And lo and behold, it won. Now, I was a bit cunning because I, I called the thing a barra bowl, and I kind of thought, well, that's pretty Queensland, you know, the barra thing. Yeah, barra short for barramundi fish. Yeah. Yep. And I thought, that's pretty Queensland. I've got to like that, you know. And the shape looks pretty good. Let's, you know, I'll give it a go. So I did, but the honest truth is I hadn't really developed it as far as I should have done. And um, we'd, I'd been sort of toying with the idea of doing anodized aluminium, but hadn't found a pro processor that could do the colours I wanted, um, which is some, since I've, something I've been able to sort of get there. But the, um, yeah, it's funny, the, the seat was the thing that I was really trying to do that I thought was interesting, and the bowl was the thing that was successful, mm. so you never can mm. tell. So it, although, and the seat, to be honest, I guess was, to a large degree, pure whimsy. You know, it wasn't, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of a groovy seat, and it's in my... Um, hallway at my home, you know, it kind of looks good and people comment on it, but the reality is that, you know, you'd have to say it isn't like screamingly functional, it looks pretty cool. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, whimsy sometimes <laughs> leads on to other things, doesn't it? Sometimes. And some of the great designers have had their whimsy, but you know, yeah. they've been ahead of their time. Yeah, huh? so, you know, I would have to admit to doing a few things like that, I just, you know, a few yeah. things that just, because my background actually, um, I did a degree in fine art before I specialised in industrial design. And I, I, a lot of my friends are artists, and uh, uh, there's a lot of influences there and a lot mm. of interest in that side of things. I've got a, quite a large collection of painting, and it's all people that I know. I, I wouldn't really buy something by someone I didn't really know. Oh, and it's, um, good, it's good to support fellow people like exactly this. You know, right. well, I'm sure you got the same support from people when you first started. No. No? <laughs> it's not surprising uh, in, a, in a sort of a situation where they were able to do it that they would actually try to dissuade you from a career in um, art or design, sort of knowing that it's pretty unlikely to actually make a living. Um, so I went through the school of hard knocks in that sense, mm. and they busily tried to kick me out all the way through until my final assessment when they came along and I was all sort of nervous and they said, oh, we know your work, David, and walked on. And I'd spent, you know, a year putting together this exhibition of my work and I got a high distinction. That's the only time I've got any praise at all through that right. learning process. So, so is this very offhand way? <laughs> so, is design a passion for you? Uh, oh, absolutely. I is wouldn't be bothering with this business at all if it wasn't for sort of the the joy of um, developing a new thing and, and and sort of creating another idea and um, you know sort of coming you know finding something where nothing else existed before. You still get that buzz out of, um, you know, like you said, there's a void, you have a spark of inspiration, and eventually after a process, there it is physically sitting in that space. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, what a thing to be able to do, you know? So, um, yeah, no, I do. I mean, you know, I think like all small businesses, I've got all the problems of getting paid and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And I mean, you spend a lot of time at this desk just doing management stuff instead yeah, of design. Yeah, for money and stuff yeah. like that you know which is a real shame but that's the way it is yeah and um you know i'm very determined to um have enough turnover so i can keep the people that 
I've employed so I can enjoy working with them. Um, and um, I mean, all my employees, uh, I found it difficult to get a start in the industry without actually, as I mentioned earlier on, going through a process of sort of creating objects myself and creating some sort of um, understanding of my skill level um, by just investing in myself uh, in, in various ways. And, uh, and I guess even when I set up this business, it still remained the same way. I'd done quite a bit of work for other people and I guess there's a certain amount of respect for it, but you know, the final job I had, um, I'd got retrenched from. And I mean, after I'd gone, they'd realized that I was one of the few people actually creating anything. I mean, it's back in the nineties when it's sort of early nineties when things went a bit pear shaped. But um, even as I said earlier on, even within design companies, sometimes they simply can't see the wood for the trees. I, I don't really understand it at all. Um, uh, and and the, the last company I worked for, it was the same thing. Uh, um, I'd done some really nice design work for this guy and, uh, and I'd been talking about maybe setting up a street furniture business and he, um, he said, well, you know, I want to do that business. And I said, no, no, this is, you know, something I've been thinking about for a while. I want to do it myself. And he said, well, I want to do it with you. And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, do you want a job anymore? And I said, well... You know, but there was a few more expletives than this, and I won't go into those. But in the end, basically, what it came down to was, you know, was I prepared to sort of take this punt? And his his punt was that I wouldn't be brave enough to do it. And I've always found that if someone tells me I'm not brave enough to do something, that's exactly what I will do. Mm. You know, uh, and that's the way things still remain uh, because I found it fairly difficult, and because a lot of companies won't give you credit for your design ideas either. So. Um, even as a sort of a person working for bigger companies or working for whatever size companies in the design industry, most companies, um, because they're concerned about you maybe leaving and taking clients and so on, are very loath for you to actually acquire any of the work you do for them for the purposes of showing people, you know, what you're capable of. So it's very difficult for a young designer to actually establish their credibility in the industry. I've um, employed people directly from college with very limited um, understanding of processes, but quite good designs with a certain level of skills and with me with an appreciation of where they might be able to go and, and prepared to actually invest in that person uh, to find out. As they've developed and the opportunities come along, things like um, the DIA awards, the QDOS awards and so on, I've been able to um, Put those people up for awards as themselves and that has helped them a lot you know they have got a they are developing their own personal profile but even if they did go out in time and set up their own design business um it'd be a case of you know rising tide lifts all the ships wouldn't it also it's going to happen i mean you know there's a logic to that and it takes a very very motivated and very uh, person with great application to actually translate um design skills into into cash into a business yes fully fledged <laughs> fully operating yes business and lifestyle and cash like you say yeah. yes. yes it takes a lot to do that where where are you going where, where are you've been knocking away at this for 35 years you say where are you going you know next what's the next, next you know, 20 30 years yeah. that you've got left in you 
Are you, you going to continue? You want to continue in this field, or um, do you want to take it down another path? Do you? Um... Uh, we, we sort of, well, we. I, I say we because I, I feel that I'm part now of a, a broader thing. Although you know, at the end of the day, I have to pay. <laughs> but that buck stops with me. But I consider my employees to be sort of um, colleagues as much as employees, and so. So if I can use the term we, we're sort of heading down a, an interesting path. We're running events in our new space here at West End. Um, and uh, we're involving other people from the creative industries in those events. And we're just sort of seeing, you know, we're, by trying various things, we're seeing what people are interested in and, you know, how we can network with people to find out what they want. And, you know, we, we're, we're hopeful that um, by generating um, a sort of a an interesting space to work in, an interesting space where we've where we can we have the we have the room to to do a lot of um, things that a lot of things variations on what we do may happen. So so I don't know. I haven't really so so you're hoping well. to turn this into a bit of a uh, performance space or something? Aren't you? Well, we've had um, so far we've had a, a musician who's also a painter. Have a show here. We've had an art show, we've had a light show, and we've had a Christmas tree show to date. And this is a, this is a design studio. It sounds like it's studio. well, you know, up here on the second little half second floor where the actual designers are is very different to the void downstairs, which would have been the workshop once, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was originally. It's a proper industrial space, so it originally had three phase power and big machines. So up here is going to be the design studio, and downstairs is going to be the studio. Well, Almost, um, some to show things, you know, yeah. and you can call it whatever you like. You know, there's highfalutin terms and basic terms. You know, it's either a it's either a, a studio gallery, or it's a, uh, an art space, or it's just a you know a, a great big shed where or, you can shove stuff. Yeah, you know. Well, it sounds like <laughs> we're going back onto that theme of you helping people get an initial leg up, maybe. Well, there's a, I think there's a lot of that still lurking around in the background with me. Yeah, well, you do that with your young designers you pull out. Yeah, I, um, and I'm curious about what other people can do. And I, I, and I get a lot of joy out of seeing um, other people develop into something. Mm. But at least you're giving them a bit of a leg up. Yeah, well, I think so. I think, you know, that it's, it's an important thing to do. I think it's a, it's a bit of encouragement that goes a long way. And, 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 mm. and that seems to be where you're going. So you've got a great business here and you're looking after the people who are coming through, the next generation. Well, David, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for come, telling me your story. And uh, I've learned a lot. Yeah. Good on you. Thanks, mate. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.